0: Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. The programme you're about to hear was originally aired on the Life in Sense podcast.
1: Susan Sontag said smelling gives one a knowledge of sensation rinsed clean of thought. Its effect is powerful, but it's not articulated. And because it's not articulated, it's rarely recorded. Imagine a faraway city, and imagine that we want to know what this place smells like. We can call up on the telephone and ask some of the people to tell us what the place smells of. But people who live there don't know how to describe the things that they are smelling. We can be more specific and ask them detailed questions about the smell of lemons or cucumbers, for example. But in this place, people have never imagined what a cucumber might be. And lemon in this place is a name for another thing entirely. Talking to people is not enough to learn what the place smells like. So we can travel there, and we can use our high-tech machines to take a snapshot of the chemical composition of a smell. We can take our machines home with us, and then rebuild the smells brick by molecular brick in a lab. So we have the smells, or at least we have a few of the millions upon millions of smells that exist in that place, but how strong are these smells, and where are they found? We can try to map them, but unlike things, smells move, and even if we piece what little vague information we have together. These maps we can build tell us nothing of what these smells mean to people and little about their lives. Studying, recording and drawing meaning from what a place smells like is a really difficult and rarely approached task. It's one taken on by the guest of this episode of Life in Sense. Only, our guest studies places that don't exist, places that he can't travel to, that are lived in by people he can't speak to. William Tullet is a historian of 18th century England with a keen interest in smell, who has gone some way to rebuilding scentscapes from hundreds of years ago, from the things left behind. From passing comments in diaries, itineraries, wills, maps, William Tullet is a historian of smell.
2: There has been work a while ago uh, in the past that's looked at smell, and people have obviously been interested in perfume in particular. There's been lots of popular histories of of perfume. But in academic study, uh, there's been less work. In the 1980s in France, there was a guy called Alain Corbin who wrote a book called The Foul and the Fragrant, which became sort of one of the cornerstones of the history of smell, if you like. And that was looking at France in the 18th and 19th centuries. But he was particularly focused on looking at deodorisation and the development of modern fears about odour and about the needs of clean public spaces. So he was quite focused on public health, um, environmental science, all that sort of stuff. And basically stink, really. Um, foul odour.
3: This rendezvous of jilts, whores and sharpers began now to be very full insomuch that the swore breaths of the corrupt carcasses and the turpentine belches that were ever and anon thrown into our nostrils in the crowd were so offensive that the pumping of a Derby ale cellar or the removal of an old closed stool pan could not have surprised our smell with the more intolerable nosegay."
2: So I think if we start to think beyond hygiene in 18th century London and beyond faeces and public health and uh, night soil men uh, taking away the um, excrement every morning. There are other smells, and actually one of the most interesting aspects of thinking about smell in 18th century London is the division between the herbal and the rural. So there are lots of people who complain about smell of 18th century London but then in doing that they're also talking about the smell of sweet mown hay, um, the smell of flowers and things like that that they might not perhaps have in their daily life in, in London in the same way. But there are also people who say they prefer the scent of the city so there's uh, James Boswell a famous diarist from the period talks about a friend who says he prefers the smoky smell of a flambeau outside a, a, play, a playhouse to the smell of an a summer's evening in the country. So some people prefer and take pleasure in the sort of smoky smells of the city to a certain extent. But perhaps one of the other ways you might get at more pleasurable smells is thinking about spaces like pleasure gardens. So Vauxhall pleasure gardens, for example.
3: I found every sense overpaid with more than expected pleasure. The lights everywhere were glimmering through the scarcely moving trees, the full-bodied concert bursting in the stillness of the night. The natural concert of the birds in the more retired part of the grove vying with that which was formed by art. The company gaily dressed, looking satisfaction, and the table spread with various delicacies.
2: So if you're wandering into a pleasure garden of an evening, you might hear the music first, so there's always some form of musical performance going on vocal music as well as instrumental music going on. The various songs that were sung in the pleasure gardens often reference sort of pastoral paradises with the smells of shrubs and the sounds of soft trickling streams and the sweet breaths of young women. So there's this sort of pastoral element that's emphasised in the music which you probably would have struck you. As you move around the gardens there's various walks which were sort of shaded uh, by trees that you might walk down for a bit of privacy and They're often the places where people talk about having assignations and slightly more erotic encounters. <laughs> There's, for example, the Rotunda in the centre of Vauxhall Gardens where you've got paintings being displayed and you've also got spaces for eating and things like that. They would have lots and lots of shrubs, lots and lots of flowers. Much play was made of the sort of scent of the surroundings. And it's also a space where... Lots of people be wearing things like perfume and hair powder and things like that. So there are slightly more salubrious scents going on there. Thinking about what was fashionable in terms of perfume in the 18th century is quite difficult. But I think the sort of the more general fashion for scent changes during the period, and particularly during the early 18th century, there's lots more use made of things like orange flower. By the middle of the period, you're looking more at things like lavender, violet. And then by the end of the 18th century, that's increasingly turning to uh, Otto of Roses, which is the most fashionable scent of the late 18th century into the sort of 1810s, 1820s as well. I think there is just a change in fashion in general. I also think there's class distinctions to be made in the way that scent's being used. So lavender, for example, lavender water has... Medical, lots of perfumes have medical applications during the period, but lavender water in particular seems to have a medical significance for curing the vapours and helping resuscitate people who fainted and things like that. And it often gets contrasted to Otter of Roses in the later 18th century. And Otter of Roses, being this sort of really fashionable scent, doesn't really have a medical efficacy in the same way. Whereas lavender water is useful as well as being pleasurable. And so lavender water, to a certain extent, becomes associated with the middle classes, although slightly lower down the social spectrum. There's also the sense in which some materials like musk, for example, aren't perhaps being used to the same extent as they were in the 17th century, or later would be actually in the 19th century. And I think that, in part, does actually stem from the difficulty of getting hold of things. So one of the main ways in which uh, musk is taken into britain during the 18th century is on ships from china and what is the other big commodity that's being imported from china in the 18th century tea and so there's lots of anxiety about people taking things like musk or camphor or other really highly scented products on ships with tea because they'll change the odor of the tea and ruin it trying to understand how people got hold of the ingredients and what use they put them to or what ingredients they were buying is quite difficult and it's something i'm trying to do more research what increasingly the rest of the year I'm gonna be looking at recipe books, both print and manuscript, and I've built up quite a big database of recipes. So I've got about nine hundred recipes in there at the moment and I'm gonna add more manuscript recipes later in the year. So they're very useful to trying to understand who's making what. And actually so far I've mainly looked at manuscript recipes from the seventeenth century and the later seventeenth century. They tend to be using things like so fresh petals from roses which they might not necessarily be buying elsewhere, and fat, which is obviously hard, you know, easier to acquire from other places. There are recipes using things like musk and olibanum and, and myrrh and um, other more common p- ingredients we might associate with perfume, but they're not necessarily always being used for perfumery. Um, they're being used for perfume in the, in, the, in the sense of its original meaning, in the sense of to burn. I think that a lot of people expect perfume to be associated with women, And that's an expectation that has coloured some histories of the subject, I think. And yet perfume, the sort of perfume products that people were using, so hair powder, pomatum, uh, paste for the hands, smelling bottles, things like that, they were quite unisex in a sense. When people talk about men wearing perfume in the early 18th century, it's always orange flower every single time, whereas for women it's a bit more varied. But apart from that, there doesn't seem to be too much of a distinction. And yet, there is always this association running through the 18th century, and that becomes particularly acute in the second half of the 18th century, of effeminacy with perfume. And often that association of effeminacy with perfume actually comes from people just wearing too much perfume, the sheer amount of perfume at a certain effeminate male was wearing. So I've researched the macaronis, for example, from the late 18th century, basically these sort of funny effeminate male types who dress up in all the latest fashions, continental fashions. They wear loads of perfume and hair powder. They're associated with the grand tour and with the sons of rich young aristocrats. But it also by the 1770s macaroni is becoming this term that's used to refer to anybody that engages in over extravagant fashion this gets attacked in the pleasure gardens where people wearing too much perfume can easily cause offense to others because there's spaces where lots of people are congregating lots of people are mixing um bodies going to and fro, and mumbling and jumbling into each other and so having really strong or a real variety of perfumes Uh, can be offensive in that context, and increasingly that's the way they're described in the late 18th century. Personal space, I think, comes into it to a significant degree. So there's lots of interest in this idea that smell creates atmospheres around bodies. The, The science of the 18th century and environmental science of the 18th century is very interested in Bodies having this this sort of circumambient atmosphere around them into which all the particles of smell might diffuse. So it's this idea that their body sometimes, somehow it extends into the space beyond which it should and invades other people's personal space in a way that's detrimental. I think it becomes particularly acute and important in the 18th century because during the late 17th and 18th century, you've got this real increase in what some people have termed an urban renaissance. You've got this real increase in public spaces, and so in those sort of spaces, this focus on personal space becomes a particularly um, interesting and useful way to think about how we interact with each other in a way that perhaps it didn't before. And so I think that's one of the reasons why perfume comes under attack perhaps more in the later 18th century. I think one of the other things about the macaronis that make them really offensive um, is that the idea of the macaroni becomes increasingly associated with people who are dressing above their station, essentially. So it's people who are aping fashions associated with the upper classes. And there's an extent to which there's a worry that perfume is disguising something. It's disguising your upbringing or the class that you may or may not come from. It might be disguising the smell of the trade that you actually engage in most of the day. So there's criticisms of the wives of tradesmen as well who you know smell of stale fish and tobacco and things like that and then they're covering it up with warren's milk of roses or with otter of roses in an attempt to be fashionable and try and mimic the stars of the upper classes There are French perfumers and continental perfumers who are coming to live in London. There are some cases of perfumers who who have trade cards that advertise in French and English. There's not perfume houses in the same way that we would have now, necessarily, partly because there's quite a high turnover with perfumers in terms of going bankrupt and then people starting up new businesses. Um, So they don't survive in the same way that perhaps we do have a few 18th century perfume houses that survive from 18th century France. There is, for example, Flores in London who did set up in the 1730s, but they were primarily concerned really at first with, with combs rather than perfume. I think there are some people who are making cases for seeing it sort of as an art or a science. Um, there's like a William Vickery, who's a perfumer from Common Garden um, in the later 18th century, who <laughs> one of the things he does is he kills bears, live bears in his shop. Um, to get their grease, because bear's grease becomes very popular in the later eighteenth century. But one of his advertisements talks about how he has created a system of perfumery from his travels on the continent, and he does talk about it as an art. How far there's an acceptance of that, I'm not really sure. Some people, particularly early in the century, sort of see perfumers as quite similar to quacks, really, and there's a lot of concern about perfumers using less than salubrious products in their perfume, So in in hair powder rather than using starch for example using um, bones or for example the use of lead which in in various facial cosmetics which gets attacked during the later 18th century particularly. So I'm not sure if it has a status of art and I don't think the perfumer as an individual has quite the same status as it does now in the sense that we have these sort of master perfumers and noses that's just not really the case in the 18th century. Some of the perfumers, who, some people who sell perfume, actively disassociate themselves from it. There's a portrait of one late 18th century perfumer, a sketch, who sells perfume and does hairdressing, and he also sells shaving equipment. And he's pictured with the shaving equipment. So it doesn't have, really have the same status, I don't think.
1: What was the language of smell? Was the word smell prevalent? Were people talking about odour? Were they talking about aroma? Were they talking about scent?
2: in terms of perfume in the early 18th century there's a really common word odoriferous which actually doesn't sort of declines in use throughout the period um in terms of odor and smell they're both used to describe perfumes um and things like fragrant as well but of course perfume in a sense is in itself an a description of a smell um you know it's often used to describe something that smells nice um and so obviously it's put to use by satirists and inverted and used to describe excrement and things like that instead for comical use. So all of those sort of words are quite common in the 18th century. But of course, there's also the fact that you've got this huge material vocabulary of things, of, of objects that smell a certain way that you could use to talk about smell. And finding those is much, much more difficult, I think. There's also a sense in which towards the end of the 18th century, the vocabulary of talking about smell does change. And this does actually fit in with some of the big narratives about smell. This idea that there's a, a need to deodorise space and urban space, um, and a focus on a fear of smells. Because towards the end of the 18th century, it seems that there's an increasing use of the words agreeable and disagreeable and offensive, words like that to describe smell. And that would seem to suggest that there is an increasing focus on whether things smell pleasurable or, or disgusting, rather than describing smells in terms of what they smell like.
3: It was indeed a compound of villainous smells, in which the most violent stinks and the most powerful perfumes contended for the mastery. Imagine yourself, a high, exalted essence of mingled odours, arising from putrid gums in Postumated lungs, sour flatulences, rank armpits, sweating feet, running sores and issues, plasters, ointments and umbracations, hungry water, spirit of lavender, asafoetida drops, musk, hartshorn, and sal volatile, besides a thousand fouzy steams which I could not analyse. Such, O oh Dick, is the fragrant ether we breathe. Such is the atmosphere I have exchanged for the pure, elastic, animating air of the Welsh mountains. Ah.
2: In the last, sort of, the late 90s onwards, we've had lots more people just more interested in smelling in general and more interested in the senses in general. I think that people have been, become more interested in the body and in subjectivity and in the way people experience and felt in the past and so smell comes out of that to a certain extent. So I'm essentially trying to use as wide a base of source materials as possible. And that might range from things like court records, so the old Bailey papers, which are actually now digitised online. Fascinating resource. You can just go online, it's free, um, from 1670s through to the 19th century and just search for anything. Um, So you can find examples of people talking about smells on there um, and perfume shops being robbed, for example. But also things like periodicals and magazines from the 18th century, newspapers, uh, satirical prints, caricatures. And then things like recipes, obviously, both printed and also manuscript recipes that people might use at home. So there's a whole range of sources you can look at. And I think that's why people have become so interested in smell, so interested in the senses, is because effectively they are are everywhere, but it's very difficult to get at them sometimes. So effectively they're everywhere and nowhere at the same time.
0: Is there a practice amongst historians of looking at... What things were made of, looking at the the climate, the environment, and then working back from there to assess what something what a, what a place of time smelt
2: like in a simple answer, no, uh, partly because and this is why part of the reason that that smell has perhaps taken so long to establish such itself as a, a, a topic of academic study is because people frown upon the idea that we could go back to the past or or think about what it would smell exactly like in the past. It's very difficult to do that, and there's numerous reasons for why that's difficult. Um, Some historians and and literary critics have pointed to modern neuroscience to explain the ways in which smell clearly varies by our occupation, gender, a whole host of variables. So it would be very difficult to imagine exactly what something would have smelt like. But also the the cultural resonances of smells are so different in other periods. Uh, So lavender, for example, had a whole host of very different meanings to to those that we might have now in 20th century Britain. I did a presentation where I handed round some lavender water to the people who were there, and they all just said it smelled like old women. I think smelling bottles are really interesting... I mean, I think they're fascinating simply because this is idea that you can carry smell on your person and sort of have it there when you need it. When you're abroad, when you're travelling, you can just open the smelling bottle and smell it. And I think that's just a wonderful thing, really. And it's something that we don't necessarily have in the same way. Now, you know, people wouldn't carry around a smelling bottle in the way the 18th century individuals would. And it's really interesting because they're sort of often marketed at people who are going away on ships or travelling, for example. And so that might. To a certain extent, be the scent of home as well as being a sort of having a medical use to try and stop you from fainting, for example. The thing about smelling bottles is the main thing they're used for a lot of the time is to resurrect people when they faint um, or to stop them from fainting in the first place.
0: Why is fainting as an activity something more associated with the 18th century than perhaps today?
2: So it's all bound up with a culture of sensibility. So in the 18th century, you get the rise of medical ideas that focus on the nerves and their stimulation in a way that wasn't there before. So early modern medicine tended to focus on the humours, for example. So this new focus on the nerves means that there's lots of worry about their overstimulation, about you know, sudden frights, whether those frights are visual or auditory or olfactory. And often those frights then end up with fainting. And that's something that dominates lots of novels of the period, sort of fainting and swooning heroines.
0: There's more of a awareness of the dangers of fainting, but there's also more fainting, or there's more talking about fainting.
2: The line becomes quite blurred, I think, uh, <laughs> by a certain point in the 18th century. Um, and people seem to see it as sort of a sign of, as being, of being quite affected and sort of put on, actually, uh, in some respects. So whether people are fainting intentionally to try and attract attention or whether they're fainting simply because they are actually have a physical thing that's making them faint is actually sort of rather up for discussion. And that's one of the wonderful problems of history. And, and so there are instances where people say they smell things and they find it really offensive. And you're sort of sat there wondering, did they really find it that offensive? There's there's a wonderful instance of um, a woman in a pleasure garden who, sort of well-bred woman... Um, with, you know, lovely done-up hair, flowers, uh, goes sit down at a table. And there's already another woman sat there, a slightly lower-ranking sort of middling-order woman who has what's described as lots of vegetables in her upper works. Um, So instead of flowers, she's got, you know, leeks and onions and carrots and stuff in her hair. And they have a fight over who gets to sit at the table, and eventually a leek gets stuck in the well-bred woman's hair. And she is overcome by the smell. She says it's so disgusting, she can't stand it. Which, is really, which to us would sound bizarre and very strange, but it's, it may well be a fiction, or it may well be a way of asserting your power and trying to win an argument by claiming that you're going to faint. It's very difficult to disentangle what's real and what's not, often with things like fainting and swooning.
3: We next went through the market, where a parcel of holly-red-faced dames in blue aprons and straw hats, sat selling of their gardenware, who stunk so strong of brandy, strong drink and tobacco, that the fumes they belched up from their overcharged stomachs overcame the fragrance that arose from their sweet herbs and flowers.
0: I've noticed this kind of incredible um, reference that when you talk about smell in history, the number of people who bring up Jorvik, Viking, <laughs> Centre, is incredible. That's designed to kind of focus attention on history and make you think about it, almost kind of come up with what you expect rather than a sort of historical investigation.
2: Lots of people talk about Jorvik Viking Centre. Yes, that's true. Um, and there have been academics who've talked about it and criticised the way it engages with smell through public history. And I think the problem that people find with it is that it's this, this quite sort of horrible history's assumption that the past just smelled horrible. And probably the the past didn't smell that great a lot of the time. And yet, if you look through historical sources, it's not necessarily always the most stinking, the most awful smells that people refer to. And I think, to some extent, for some people, they simply got used to the smell of of faeces and the smell of urine, for example. And so when you look at diaries, it's actually not those sort of smells that jump out of you. It's, for example, the smell of new paint, which is an incredibly evocative smell, and it signifies the, you know a change in the way the household is being run, or a new owner, or you're moving into a new house for the, for the first time. So it, it's, it's the unusual smells that really get picked up on. And unfortunately, sort of Jorvik just emphasizes this blanket of stench, I think, which is why some historians dislike it. I came to smell partly because when I was doing my history degree, I became really interested in the uses of anthropology in history and thinking about dirt for example mary douglas's work on dirt i just found absolutely fascinating the way that's been applied in history and also i became really interested in space and, and geographies and urban geographies and smell and perfume seemed like a natural way of bringing those two things together i think in in really interesting and really revealing ways but i'm also as i said before i'm somebody who i am really interested in the the what it it felt like to be in the past, adding texture to our accounts of the past. And I think smell is a really lovely way of doing that.
0: If you had to choose one smell that represents the 18th century.
2: One smell to represent the whole 18th century. I probably lavender water because of because it straddles this line between perfume and medicine which is a really important part of how we understand perfume in the 18th century um, and it's, it's very very popular and it's the sort of thing that you would find in smelling bottles so i think lavender water would possibly be one cent beyond shit.
0: You've been listening to William Tullett of King's College London. The programme was produced by me, Joe Barrett, for the Life in Sense podcast with Odette Toilette and featured the voices of Ed Atrill and Helen Pike. Life in Sense is mainly an interview show that talks to people about the different ways in which they engage with their sense of smell. You can find it on iTunes and the usual places.